Well, before we dive into our passage this morning, I want to ask you a question. What is one thing you want God to change in your life? It could be anything. If if you could change one thing, if you could ask God to change one thing in your life, what would it be? So you can think on that, come up with an answer. We are going to come back to that question in a little bit. But before that, let me just kind of review uh, some of what Paul has already talked about in chapter 7. Some of you may be uh, new with us this morning. Uh, This may be your first time. So if you don't know, we have been going through 1 Corinthians for the, for the last several months, even going back into last year. Uh, some of you may have just forgotten what we've talked about. Um, sometimes Chris doesn't use enough props. And so that can, it can be hard to kind of keep all of that information in your mind over a long period of time. We also took a break for Easter, and, and then we were in another short series about being shaped by the gospel. So as a refresher, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul starts off this whole chapter addressing an idea which was starting to pervade the church, the idea being that true holiness is gained through celibacy. Now, praise the Lord, we learned that that is not a biblical perspective uh, over the last few weeks uh, of going into chapter seven. In the first verse of the chapter, verse one, Paul quotes this phrase as being kind of thrown out among uh, people in Corinth or among the, the church in Corinth. It's, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's the philosophy that's kind of being thrown out there that Paul's going to address. And the problem with that is that as people were starting to adopt that philosophy and think that it was true, you had uh, some people who were now denying their spouses any kind of intimacy within the context of their own marriage. You had other people that were now seeking a divorce because after all, if celibacy is kind of the the spiritual standard in Christianity, marriage is just going to end up being a stumbling block. So maybe we should just divorce one another and kind of be uh, done with it. So in verses one through 16, we see Paul addressing all of these situations And he's providing a biblical model of things like marriage and intimacy, even divorce, in order to oppose the secular view that was was being considered by some in the church. On the other side of our passage, I want to kind of look at uh, not just what we've talked about, but even what we're going to be talking about in future weeks so that we understand the context of this passage this morning. So on the other side of this passage, you have Paul now addressing the same thought pattern, but he's applying it to single people. So again, after all, if celibacy is the standard, if that's, if that's what makes you quote unquote spiritual or, or faithful to God, then even if you want to be single, or even, I'm sorry, even if you want to be married and you're single, it seems like you should remain in your singleness. Don't, you know, don't even pursue marriage. So what if I'm single and I want to be married? Is that, is that a bad thing to desire? What if I'm engaged? I'm about to be married. Should I now break off that engagement in order to pursue what some people are calling this spiritual life? So these are, the, these are the questions that Paul is going to answer in verses 25 through 40 after our passage this morning. So it can be easy to come to 
our passage, verses 17 through 24 of 1 Corinthians 7, and see it as, as kind of this tangent that Paul is going on, because it's not talking about marriage, it's not talking about divorce, it's not talking about sexual intimacy, it's not talking about singleness. And this, this is really kind of the view that a lot of people have adopted when it comes to this passage, because it's not unusual, if you, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul and the way he writes it, it wouldn't be strange to say, this is a tangent. Paul goes off on tangents quite a bit in his writing sometimes. He gets something in his mind and he just kind of takes off with it. And then he's going to come back at some point with kind of the thought that he started with. But if we view this passage, not just on its own, but in the context of its surrounding paragraphs, then we see that actually verses 17 through 24 provides Paul's entire theological foundation for his instructions throughout chapter seven. So if you're a visual learner like me, you, you uh, enjoy imagery, you can think of chapter seven as kind of a wheel. And so you have verses uh, one through 16 as the tire and verses 25 through 40 as the tire. And then our passage, verses 17 through 24, is kind of the hub. It, it's giving power to the tire. It's delivering uh, the power of the engine to the tire so that it actually goes somewhere. Now, what I haven't actually said yet is what is Paul's theological foundation for all of chapter 7? What is this principle that he's kind of resting all of these important issues on and, and using it to answer or speak into some of these things going on in the church? Well, the answer is Christ's calling. Paul is going to use this concept of being called by God to Christ as the central defense for his views on sexuality, on marriage, on singleness, on divorce, all of these, all of these issues that are being uh, brought up throughout chapter seven. And I hope that you are as eager as I am to kind of get into this passage and see what Paul is actually saying as it relates to Christian calling. Because in my opinion, Christian calling is one of the most important and one of the most applicable doctrines of the Christian faith, while at the same time being one of the most misunderstood or misused doctrines of the Christian faith. And to explain what I mean, here are just a few ways that this term calling can be misused. These are, these are things that I've observed in my own life, which granted has not been very long. Uh, it, it's even been some, at some points, things that I've been guilty of as well. So these are just uh, three ways that I've seen this kind of terminology being misused. The first is that we can use calling as a way to over-spiritualize our desires and ambitions. We can use calling as a way to over-spiritualize our desires and our ambitions. So for example, you have a, a young Christian man who looks across the aisle, maybe this morning, looks across the aisle and sees a young Christian woman. And instead of doing the normal thing and going up to her after the service and, and saying, hello, would you like to grab a cup of coffee sometime? Instead of that, he comes up to this girl and he says, hey, I feel that God has called me to date you. 
Now, what has he done in that situation? By the way, that's not the one that I'm guilty of. I just want to clarify that. (laughs) What has he done in that situation? He has attached this kind of spiritual significance to something that he desires to do. May not be a bad thing, may not be wrong, but he is, he's used this term calling to now, instead of this is my desire, now it's my spiritual duty to date this girl. Now, ladies, if you're ever in this situation in the future, a great comeback is, well, then God must not have my number because he hasn't called me to that. Okay, this is essentially what uh, the Corinthians are guilty of in the the context of our specific chapter, chapter seven. They are using this idea of calling some of them in order to justify or spiritualize some of their desires. Some of them actually want to be divorced. Some of them are in what you could call a mixed marriage where one is a Christian and one is not a Christian and they find that a very difficult situation to be in. And so surely the spiritual thing to do, the calling that I have on my life surely is to divorce this person. The calling that I have on my life surely is to live in celibacy. The calling that I have on my life surely is just to stay in my singleness, even if I don't desire to be singled. Second, not only can we use this word calling to over-spiritualize, we can also use it to devalue our current situation. So this is what happens when you ask a Christian what they do and they start their answer with, I'm just, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. I'm just a barista. I'm just an intern. But, But that's not my real calling. My real calling is fill in the blank. And when I start doing that, that is when my life will really have purpose. That is when my life will really have significance. And then third and finally, we can use calling as a way to excuse laziness or lack of direction. So you may see this in a person, for example, who who seems to lack any sort of ambition in their life. They seem completely debilitated or stagnant where they are at in life. And if you ask them why, they say, I am just waiting to figure out my calling. I'm waiting for God to call me to something. And until that happens, I might as well do nothing at all. Those are ways that we can misuse this idea or this doctrine of Christian calling. But Paul, not call, Paul is going to give us a much healthier and a much more biblical kind of framework or view of calling in this passage. And so if you've ever struggled with this idea of discerning your calling, understanding what you are called to, then I hope that by the end of this morning, you will be able to leave, get in your car and have a clear picture of it because of what Paul has said in this passage. And to help us understand exactly what Paul is saying, I want to I kind of summarize his words, his thoughts into one main idea. Here it is. God calls us to himself, not a position or set of circumstances. Therefore, we can be content in this life. Let me say that again. God calls us to himself, 
not a position or set of circumstances. Therefore, we can be content in this life. The way that we know this is Paul's main idea is because he says it three different times, one at the beginning, one in the middle, and one at the end. If you're ever reading a passage and you go, what in the world is this saying? One of the easiest and first things you can do is say, is there any repetition? Paul is saying this three different times over a matter of just a handful of verses. Clearly, it is significant to him. It is what he wants us to walk away remembering. So after telling those in a mixed marriage, those who are married to an unbelieving spouse, to be at peace with whatever their spouse ends up doing in the marriage, Paul then continues in his train of thought in verse 17, and he says, only or never, nevertheless, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. In verses 20 and 24, he gives essentially the same command. He says, remain in the condition or the circumstances that you were in when Christ called you to himself. What Paul is challenging is this idea that Christian calling has more to do with external factors than internal factors. That if you want to live faithfully to God, my circumstances are going to have to change. My job will need to change. My finances will need to change. My church will need to change. On one side of this passage, you have uh, some insisting that in order to live according to God's calling, their marriages will need to change. On the other side of this passage, you have people insisting that their singleness will need to change. And in the middle of all of these claims that are being made, Paul is saying, actually, you are both wrong. God knew that you were married to an unbelieving spouse when he called you to himself. And so remain where you are. Be content in what God has called you to because it never inhibited his grace coming into your life. God knew that you were single when he called you. It has never inhibited his grace entering into your life. And so be content, remain in your singleness. God is far more concerned with changing you than he is with changing your circumstances. When the Bible talks about the Christian life and change in the Christian life, rarely is it talking about changing our circumstances. More often than not, uh, almost always change is directed toward us. Christ is about changing our hearts. And this is why uh, something like the prosperity gospel is such a manipulation, such a misunderstanding of what the Bible and what the gospel actually says. Because something like the prosperity gospel is going to position God in a way where he is far more concerned about changing our circumstances, far more concerned about making us healthy and wealthy than he is with actually addressing our hearts, than he is with addressing our sin with changing who we are as a person. Now, some of you, I would actually guess probably most of you in this room would not align yourself with something like the prosperity gospel. But let's go back to our question at the beginning 
of all of this, which was what is one thing you want God to change in your life? I would guess that most of us probably answered that question with some kind of external factor. I wish that God would change my spouse. I, I wish that God would change my GPA. I wish God would change my financial situation. I wish God would change uh, my job title. I wish God would change who's in the White House. Now, those things might not necessarily be bad in and of themselves. Those might not be sinful desires to have in our hearts. But it does not get at what God is calling us to. And in a year where I think all of us would gladly have changed our circumstances, how many of us actually saw this season as an opportunity for God to change our hearts? How many of us saw the last 365 days as an opportunity to exemplify what it actually looks like to be content in our life because Christ has called us to wherever we are at the moment. Now, I'm not standing up here in judgment as though I've got it all together. I'm not standing up here uh, uh, mad at you. Honestly, if I, if I appear frustrated, if I appear passionate this morning, it's because I'm frustrated with me. Because when I answered that question and I knew what the right answer was, right? I wrote the question into my sermon. And even when I answered the question this past week of myself, I could not honestly say that more than anything, I desired Christ to change me. I wished he would change things around me. But that's not ultimately what Christ calls us to. And so I, I need these words this morning. I need Paul's words to sink deep in my heart and in my mind. And I need to remind myself that, that God does not change your circumstances in order to work in your life because it's not your circumstances which bring significance to your Christian calling. It is your Christian calling which brings significance to your circumstances. Therefore, Paul says, remain where you were when called. Does that mean that as Christians, we can never actually seek any kind of betterment in our lives? That we cannot actually ever change jobs? We can't uh, go for that, uh, that promotion? That we cannot actually seek to be married? There's no improvement uh, that we can make on our lives. Well, the short answer is no. In fact, Paul in our passage this morning actually encourages them to pursue change in their lives when the circumstances are right. But while circumstances can change, and in many, many cases will change, they do not need to change in order for you to be faithful to Christ's calling on your life. Now, we could probably stop there, but I actually get paid by the hour. And so we're going to keep going for just a little bit longer. So in addition to this, this main idea or this principle that, that Paul has uh, kind of espoused three different times, 
and what we've just discussed, he's also going to provide two supporting claims. And with each of those claims, he's also going to provide an illustration or an example. One is going to be with a religious position. The other is going to be with a social position. And Paul's going to do this in order to show the Corinthians and to show you and me just how really far-reaching this truth is, this principle is. And so the first claim that Paul makes is this, God's calling is not defined by religious activity or category, but by God's grace. See what Paul says in verses uh, 18 and 19, he says, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So why is it that Paul brings up this topic of circumcision? Is it because he's just halfway through his letter and he goes, I'm probably losing them at this point. What's going to turn a few heads? Circumcision. Let's throw that in there. No, that is not the answer. Just in case we were wondering. The reason is that arguably circumcision had become the most divisive issue in the early church because you had both Jews and Gentiles that were now starting to follow Christ. And in the old covenant, circumcision was the distinctive sign or marker of those that were considered God's people and that were under God's covenant. So the issue came when in the new covenant, Christ came not with a circumcision of the flesh, Paul says in, uh, in uh, Colossians chapter two, not with a circumcision of the flesh, but a circumcision of the heart. And as a result, you had this debate that was developing between Jews and Gentiles as to the significance of circumcision at all. So on one side, you had some Gentile Christians who were uh, so passionately condemning circumcision that in some cases, you actually had Jewish Christians uh, potentially considering reversing the sign of circumcision. I hope those doctors had good liability insurance, right? This sounds like a very sketchy thing to do, but that, that was actually happening in this society. So in some Gentiles' minds, to remain circumcised was to live under an inferior covenant and therefore risk your standing with God. It was that significant of an issue to some Gentiles. On the other side, you had some Jewish Christians who were insisting that circumcision was so significant that those who were uncircumcised weren't truly under God's covenant, whether new or old, which was leading some Gentiles to now seek circumcision, even though that wouldn't have been uh, the, the social norm for them or even the religious norm for them. And in fact, it was not unusual at this time for Jewish rabbis to actually say circumcision was even more important of a command than keeping the Sabbath. So this is the significance that was, that was being brought to this topic of circumcision. And so... Imagine in that context, then in the middle of, of that debate that's going on in the early church for someone like Paul to come in and say, actually, circumcision does not matter at all. 
It doesn't matter if you are circumcised. It doesn't matter if you are uncircumcised. Have you ever had a friend that has gotten so worked up and so passionate about something that is completely insignificant and you've just had to look at them and and, and say, it doesn't matter. Usually they don't respond very favorably. I am speaking of experience here, okay? They're they're usually like, "It, it does matter. It is the most important thing. That's probably what's uh, going to happen here when Paul is, is making such this bold claim. So why is he willing to make that claim? Why is it so important to him that the Corinthians view circumcision at this point in the covenant as completely irrelevant? Well, the reason is that to elevate religious acts like circumcision to a place of such spiritual importance would be to essentially negate the cross in favor of a works-based salvation. This is why Paul says in Galatians chapter six, he says, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That is what matters under the new covenant. External factors like circumcision or uncircumcision are not what determines one standing before God. Being made a new creation in Christ is what determines your standing before God. Encountering God's powerful grace in your life is what determines your standing before God. That is what it means to be called in the Christian life. Not to throw ourselves and others into this kind of religious hierarchy, but that we become a new creation by the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And the way we know that we're called, Paul says, the way we've uh, encountered this grace, that we know we've encountered it, is that we keep God's commandments. So that's the first supporting claim that, that Paul's going to make to this idea that we are called to a person, not to a set of circumstances. But now Paul moves on from talking about religious barriers that might exist in Corinth to now social barriers. And he does this by comparing bond servants and freedmen in verses 21 through 23. He says, were you a bond servant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So Paul's second supporting claim can be summarized this way. God's calling is not defined by social status or circumstances, but by one's identity in Christ. Now, before we get too far, uh, it's important that we understand what this word bondservant actually means, because the same word can be translated a few different ways. It can be translated servant, bondservant, and it can also be translated as slave. But unlike what we would typically think of as as slave in our kind of North American context, a bondservant would have most often entered into this position willingly. Typically, it was for the sake of paying off debt. And so they entered into an agreement with someone that once uh, their debt was paid or once the contract had kind of been fulfilled, then that master would then uh, grant that person their freedom. 
And in fact, in some cases, you had uh, people who were bond servants after they had been freed by their master. Actually, they would proudly kind of continue to work under their master, take on their master's name in the process. And so that is why uh, Paul now instructs them to seek freedom if and when the opportunity arises, because to be a bond servant in this culture was still to be in a very low, if not the lowest position in society. And that, of course, carried its own kind of uh, situations and its burdens and its, uh, its consequences as well. So unlike circumcision and uncircumcision, which Paul is essentially uh, saying is insignificant, the difference between servant or bond servant and free is actually very significant in a lot of ways. And it may be wise or healthy, Paul is saying, to gain freedom when given the chance. Paul is not indifferent when it comes to this issue. However, his point is social status shouldn't be what dictates one's contentment as it relates to one's calling. The reason, he says in verse uh, 22, is that when Christ calls us, he doesn't call us to a place of social inferiority or superiority, but to an entirely new identity that supersedes any kind of uh, social title or, or cultural identity at all. Were you a bondservant when Christ called you? You can be content because in Christ, you are free. Were you a free man when Christ called you? Well, remember that in Christ, you were bought with a price and you belong to the Lord. That's what Paul is saying, kind of to paraphrase his thoughts. And this is Still relevant, I think, Paul's words to us today, because even though maybe we don't have this kind of bondservant and master relationship in our country today, our society has definitely not decreased in its tendency to use labels and categories in order to make one group feel inferior to another group. And so we can be encouraged that the Bible is not silent on this issue. But it says that when the world considers us less than or more than we have, uh, uh, or excuse me, better than, we have an identity that is more than anything the world could give us. And it's that identity which brings purpose to whatever position we may have. The reason, Paul repeats in verse 24, is that God calls us to himself, not a position or set of circumstances. So let's be content in whatever this life may give us. That's Paul's argument in a nutshell. Well, in our last few minutes together, then let me just conclude with giving you a few uh, points of application. If this is true, if what Paul is saying is true, and, and it is, I believe that it is, it is inspired by God himself. So if this is true, I think it should change us in three ways, at least three ways. Maybe I should put that uh, caveat on there. First, it should change the way we view our circumstances. It should change the way we view our circumstances. The Corinthians had been viewing their circumstances not through the lens of contentment, but through the lens of disappointment. 
If only I was married, then I'd be able to serve the Lord more faithfully. If only I wasn't married, then I'd be able to serve the Lord more, more faithfully. If only I was circumcised or uncircumcised. If only I was free, then I'd be able to serve the Lord more faithfully. And the list can go on and on and on. And maybe that resonates with you today, that kind of thought pattern. You viewed your circumstances as this kind of list of regrets or this list of frustrations. Maybe you wish you were married. You wish you had more respect. You wish your budget wasn't so tight each month. But listen to Paul's words in verse 17, the way that he opens up this whole discussion. He says, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. Where you are at this time in life is the direct result of God sovereignly acting in your life. God sovereignly placing you where you are. You are not there by accident. So God may change your circumstances, but that is not his ultimate concern. His ultimate concern is changing you in your circumstances and through your circumstances. His concern is to use your situation to conform you into the image of his son. And so wherever you are in life at this moment, let's see it as an opportunity to lean on God, to trust in his sovereign ways and ask him for wisdom and strength so that we can be faithful to our calling regardless of what it is. That's the, that's the first way that I think this should change us. It should change the way we view our circumstances. But then the second way that this should change us, it should change the way we view ourselves. You know, we tend to measure ourselves according to external factors. I don't know if you've ever noticed that before. But just take our immediate context as an example. In the city of Fishers, what is this community most known for? I would say it's probably most known for economic opportunity or prosperity. And so how does one determine if he or she is successful in that kind of community? Probably by how wealthy they are, how independent they are, how educated they are, how influential they are. And if they're not those things, maybe how, how close they are to becoming those things, how well they're doing in becoming those things. But just like Paul tells bond servants and free men, Christ gives us a new identity that has nothing to do with external factors, but has everything to do with the fact that we've been called by him and to him, regardless of our circumstances. And not only is the result of that calling true contentment, because I believe that it is, that we can be content in our circumstances, but with our new identity, God also has a way of using that new identity in order to speak into what we really need to hear the most, what we need to be reminded of. For example, if you are single and wish that you weren't, Christ has called you to be his own bride. He has given you a spiritual family in the church. If you're divorced or you, you come from a broken home, 
Christ has redeemed you and he has given you his own righteousness that, that completely overcomes whatever has, has been brought up in your past. If you're one of the most undervalued, underappreciated people in society, God has made you a citizen of his kingdom and you share in the inheritance of Jesus Christ. If you're a CEO or an executive and you have dozens of people working beneath you and for you, God has bought you with a price and he calls you to serve him with all your life. And so this is, this is no small thing. This is not just a theoretical, this idea of Christ giving us a new identity, but it is life changing. The third way that this should change us then. Not only does it change the view of our circumstances or the way we view ourselves, but then third and finally, this should change the way we view God. When we become discontent in our circumstances, we can have a tendency to start viewing God as what some would call a cosmic gumball machine. Maybe you've heard this phrase before where we, we give him our request, we turn the knob, and then we expect that our request, whatever we request, requested, God would then give us. And as we already said, while, while God can change our circumstances and even may change our circumstances, he may not. He may keep us right where we are for the rest of our lives. But no matter our situation, Paul reminds us at the very end of this passage that God is with us. In other words, God may not remove your trials. God may not remove your burdens, but he will always walk with you through them. We do not serve a God that is far away, but a God who is near to us and who cares for us. And so friends, wherever, wherever you find yourself this morning, on whatever end of this spectrum that you find yourself, I hope that that encourages you and brings contentment to your heart as we seek to live the life which God has called us to because he has not called us to a position or a set of circumstances. He has called us to himself and we can be content in this life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for that truth. That who we are in your eyes has nothing to do with what position we are given, has nothing to do with what identity society can put on us, but it has everything to do with what you have done for us through the cross. That you call us to yourself and that you give us a new identity in Jesus. And so I pray that as, as we go out this morning and we continue to live our lives, that we wouldn't live our lives in the context of these things that can distract us from our calling, that can, that can make it seem as though our calling is, is something beyond uh, where we are at the moment, but that we would look at where we're at right now and know that in that moment, you have called us to yourself. 
in whatever situation we find ourselves. And so I pray that not only would we be content, but that we would glorify you in all that we do, that we would live according to the calling in which you have called us to yourself. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.